We are Sarah and Laura. We are doulas, mothers, women, wives, and entrepreneurs. We love a lot of things. The gym, food, coffee, health, kombucha, our families, and our friends. We are so committed to being authentic, honest, and vulnerable and showing up here just the way we are. We promise to never positive wash anything, but please know that we are wholeheartedly committed to radically thriving. With this podcast, we hope to connect on a deeper level and talk about hard stuff. Ultimately, we want women and mothers to know deeply who they are and what makes them feel happy. Whether you're getting into a bath or taking us on a walk with you. Or maybe you're commuting to work. We are honored that you chose our podcast to listen to. I was going to say good morning and it's not morning anymore. It's morning somewhere. That's true. It's morning in Arizona. It's, it's morning. morning. Yeah, it's morning for me still. Yeah. And we are chatting with our new friend, Jessica, Jessica who we had a really lovely Zoom chat with a few weeks ago. And then we were like, we need to record a podcast with her because she's just so knowledgeable and blew our minds with the fact that why isn't everybody doing virtual postpartum pelvic floor physio? I know. When we first chatted to you, Jessica, we were like, wait, what? So yeah, take the floor, tell us your name and your everything, and also tell us, answer this question for us right off the hop, because it's the hottest one for yeah. us. Why would people do pelvic floor physiotherapy online versus in-person after they've had a baby? Okay, absolutely. So first, my name is Jessica London. Um, I'm a doctor of physical therapy, and then I went on to specialize as a pelvic floor physical therapist, and then again, as a pre and postnatal specific um, trainer, if you will. So I'm kind of like a hybrid between public floor physical therapy and pre and postnatal personal training. So to answer the hot button question, honestly, during this pregnancy and postpartum space, moms are just having a really difficult time putting themselves first, right? And we can all attest to this if you have children or if you're around people that have children, finding the time to prioritize your self-care, your well-being, your healing throughout this process or birth prep or postpartum healing is challenging when you have one kid or multiple kids. So we found this by working with people, hundreds of people in person. Uh, I did a mixture of in-clinic and mobile physical therapy where I would travel to mom's homes because my biggest thing was trying to reduce as many barriers as possible to getting moms the support and care that they needed. So my first step was mobile. And so I started showing up to mom's homes and trying to, you know, reduce the need for childcare, reduce the need for the juggle of traveling to and from appointments. And even then it found it found to be difficult. And moms also felt like, I don't want to clean my house. And I'm like, you don't need to. But they just felt the additional pressure of mm. someone coming inside their home that wasn't like, you know, part of their family. So then I actually pivoted uh, when I, you know, got my pre and postnatal training certification, I pivoted to a more wellness model. So in this, if you are going to be practicing as public health physio, you know, physical personal trait or physical therapy, you can see people in the state that you're licensed in, and it can still go through like insurance and the licensure of what a physical therapist can practice in. But if you offer a more wellness or coaching model that is still specialized in public health education and exercise prescription um, and guidance, now we can see people all over the world. So I pivoted and I said, okay, well, let's see what wellness coaching looks like and specializing in women that are pregnant, postpartum, and pelvic health. 
So that's what we set out to do. And that's what we do 100% of the time now is we work with people 100% virtually um, by providing them education is 50% of honestly what we do is just educating people about their pelvic floor, how to find their pelvic floor, what's normal, what's not normal, and how to start managing some of the day-to-day lifestyle things through education management. But then two, a supplemental exercise program where that personal training, pelvic health rehab um, brain comes in to give them the exercises they need in an app on their phone and they just press start workout and they know that they're getting those targeted exercises for them specifically. So what we found, you know, early on, and and I'll be the first to say, I was pretty skeptical. Like, am I really going to be able to get people results online? And we did. And honestly, I started noticing that my clients online were getting better faster. They were happier. They were more adherent to the program. And thus that gave them results quicker because that again, we reduced more barriers and to the access of care. And we provided a more of like collaborative community type vibe where they got a continuous support system, not just only getting support when you're in the office talking to somebody or when you're on a Zoom call. We provided a more like coaching wellness model where it was really involved into weekly communication. Whether they were on a video call or not, they could still reach us in the portal on our app. We could Mm -hmm. still have that ongoing conversation and communication. Whenever that question popped into their head, they threw it in the app and they were able to get it answered and then move on. So what we found was that people were getting really incredible results really easily, and there was virtually no difference in outcomes in person and online. And my personal bias was that people were doing it better online. Then came, you know, the C word. I'm not sure if we're allowed to say that anymore these days. It's so weird. But we, we can do this, you know, the, the time shut down. <laughs> yeah. I was like, Darian, what? <laughs> really? No, no, no. Oh, no. Right. right. COVID happened. <laughs> COVID it's happened. Darian, I went to vulgarities. <laughs> oh my God. I love you guys. The COVID. So my dad, my dad is um, British. And so he, for three years, it was COVID. And I'm like, dad, can you not that's, hear that everyone else in your world says COVID? <laughs> COVID. We're going to get the COVID. The pandemic that shall not be named. Yeah, <laughs> I know exactly. Right. Well, the world kind of shut down and everything went virtual and we were already up and running before this oh happened, God. which was so crazy, but it actually allowed more moms to look into it, which made our business explode, but also allowed more access for moms, women and moms to be able to get the support they needed. And honestly, more people are like, I've been putting this off because I don't want to go in person. I don't want some random person like in my business. And so I like that it's virtual. And, you know, 2020, there was a a huge systematic review paper that came out that included multiple randomized control trials that compared in-person public floor rehab to virtual public floor rehab. And what they found during this time that a lot of people are now doing virtual public floor rehab was there was no difference in outcomes at all whatsoever. You could still have reduction in urinary symptoms, leakage, pelvic heaviness, but also they looked at the one year and the two year follow-up because now, you know, 2023, this was three years ago and the satisfaction 
and continued results was higher in the virtual group, which was like mind blowing because for me, I believed it. I saw it. I tangibly like was experiencing it, but it wasn't quite in the research yet. So I grappled with a lot of pelvic floor physios that like, we're doing in-person care. Like, no way you're getting results online. I'm like, I am. It's so awesome. You guys got to do it. It's so great. We're able to help so many more women, women and moms that need this. Like you guys got to jump on. And they just were really resistant to it. And then this paper came out and it's like, oh, thank you for like validating that we can get the same results. And long-term follow-up shows that virtual clients actually are more satisfied and continue to maintain their results longer. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, th- I have a couple questions. I'm thinking about people who are not very kinesthetically aware and like mm-hmm. you said, you know, teaching them about where their pelvic floor is or what they're finding. So I'm thinking about prolapses, hemorrhoids, diastasis recti and i'm thinking about um what else am i thinking about there was one more hemorrhoids prolapse diastasis and maybe i can't think of it but the the i'm also thinking about postural stuff maybe you can see that more online but like is there a is there a scenario that does necessitate some sort of initial assessment to tell you does it matter if your prolapse is stage one, two, three, or four? Um, does it matter if it's rectal, urinary, or uterine? Um, does it matter how wide or big your diastasis is? Or is the training program going to be similar so ultimately it doesn't actually matter? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, a lot of ones that people are you know concerned about or confused about, right? So we're kind of talking about objective data versus subjective data, right? Typically the result, the outcome of what the clinician or the provider is going to give you would likely be the same with like maybe 10% different, depending on those subtleties that you're talking about. However, knowing that there's those subtleties and differences, it's nothing that a skilled clinician or a skilled provider can't pick up by a true subjective um, understanding whether that's someone filling out pretty extensive paperwork uh, or whether that's talking to somebody about what's going on and what they're feeling, we're going to get a way better idea of what's going on based off of what they're feeling, what those symptoms are, what they're subjectively telling us they're struggling with versus only objective data. And we know this to be true because you mentioned, does the stages of prolapse even matter? And quite honestly, we have a pretty good idea of like what somebody's staged at by just hearing what they're struggling with, because the severity of symptoms also typically sometimes correlate with the stage, but also not, right? So we can't only rely on objective data to tell us exactly how somebody's feeling because multiple research studies have shown that two people can have a stage true, stage true, like a bladder prolapse, so let's say anterior or cystocele, right? And they could have wildly different symptoms. Two people can have stage two uh, prolapse. One person can have no symptoms at all. And the other person can be highly symptomatic. They feel the bulging. They feel the pressure in the bladder. They feel like they have difficulty emptying. They feel the pelvic heaviness at the end of the day. And the other person has a stage two clinically, objectively, and they didn't even know that they had a prolapse. And I've in person can validate that because I will have someone come into the clinic for something totally different. 
I'll assess them. I'll see that they have a prolapse and I'll ask them like, do you ever have any, you know, the typical prolapse symptoms? Any of this going, no, I don't have that. Okay. All right. Well, there's yeah. a prolapse here, but if you're not worried about it, I'm not worried about it. Right. So That's it's just interesting. really interesting yeah. that we have actually found people can have the same exact stage and have different outcomes in how they feel in their body. So most importantly, and I think that you guys would really appreciate this too, like this normal, normal physiological birth process is, well, what does the mom feel? Like yeah, that's the stages the of labor. Thing, yeah. I right? was just you can have that. somebody continuous monitored or not continuous monitored, and they're still having contractions. One, we're objectively collecting data and the other one, we're not objectively connect, yeah. connecting data continuously over time, but they're still having their own experience. And that's or the same like- the difference of the definitions of like active labor. We have people who are in labor all the time and they're like, am I in active labor right now? Or they go to the hospital and they're sent away because they're two centimeters and they're not in active labor, but their contraction pattern, their intensity. And I can even say for myself, I had a very quick first birth and at two centimeters to me, it felt like I was in transition. Turns out I had a baby in my arms three hours later. So who's to say that two centimeters isn't active labor? Why is dilation the determinant of you being in active labor? And really it is more about the person's experience and what they're feeling. So I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the rest of your body was doing wildly intense right. contractions, building your fundus. And yet your cervix just hadn't responded yet. Yeah. But we're checking down the bottom thinking that's a crystal ball. Yeah. And, and by we, I mean, zero times a week. Yeah. <laughs> not, <laughs> not, a, not sticking our fingers in nope. vaginas. Okay. So I thought it'd be fun to do like, I don't mean like role play, but um, that's always fun. But uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> sorry, why do I do this? Um. So I have, I know I have a diastasis and I know I have a prolapse and I'm an open book. So let's pretend we're like on a chat together. Like, what are some things that you're asking me? And um, yeah, like, let's play this out. And just so if people, when people are listening, they're thinking like, yeah, what it might sound like if you're working with them and kind of like what, what support they would get. And also, you know, because when you said that about the stage two, like that's exactly how I found out I had a stage two that was like, oh, hey, by the way, did you realize you had a prolapse? And I actually found it really devastating. Yes, exactly. We're actually kind of creating more stress and anxiety. You know, we teeter in the public health community when we're assessing people in person, we're like, do you tell them? Do you not tell them? Because it's yeah. like, if I find it and they're not concerned about it, like, should I tell them and make a big deal about it? And so it's really about how you tell someone I'm in a lot of Facebook groups that are like prolapse about prolapse. And it's like, I just found out I had a stage two prolapse. Oh my God. Am I going to be able to have more babies? Is it going to fall out? Am I going to need surgery? And it's just like, oh my God, fight or flight response has just ignited. Mm -hmm. And so thus it's now in the back of your mind always. And you know what the body does is it increases nervous system response. And guess what? You start feeling your prolapse because you're all anxious and stressed out and the muscles are like super guarded, tight and tense. And you're hyper aware of every single thing that you might be feeling because now you're, you're on the Google rabbit train and you should be feeling this. And so then you're like, oh my God, I do feel that. So it's, it's one of those things that, you know, we really need to be mindful about how we're communicating it to people, but also the reality of what actually is happening, because it's like, I don't know the statistic off my hand, so don't quote me on it, but it's really high. It's like in seventies or eighties percentage people have some form of prolapse after one baby. Wow. So it's like 70 or 80%, like in that, in that high range have at least a stage one prolapse after having a vaginal birth. And sometimes, you know, a C-section too, because you're not, so your pelvic floor is not spared by having a C-section. 
So yeah, we can totally go down the um, the role playing train if you want to. I'm happy to do that. But I but just wanted to emphasize that it truly is one of these things that we need to be mindful about the words that we're utilizing, but also trying to create more education around it. Because when we can create education, it reduces fear and anxiety around the, these things that are happening. Yeah. Amen. So I do feel like the pelvic floor therapist that I saw was maybe in that same place that you're talking about of like, do I tell her, do I not? Like, I feel like she was kind of didn't give me a number, but just kind of had said like something around some bulging. And then it was when I had gone in for, what do you call that thing where they take a chunk of your cervix to look at it? Uh, oh, um, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. First with a C, I think. Sir, no, that's no. circlage or something else. Um, colposcopy. No, yeah. that's, that's your colon. colon. Oh, a leap is it a leap procedure. No, that's where you sew it, isn't it? I don't know. Think- we'll add it to the show notes and come up with it later. <laughs> um, <laughs> where no one's here as a midwife or OB. So. Yeah, yeah. So I had go- I basically my my I was bleeding times I shouldn't be bleeding. Yes. and mm. obviously they think okay, is your cervix cancerous? So they go and they. Yeah. Take it. Biopsy. It's like a biopsy. Sure. Um, so I go in and while I'm there, I figure I've got an OB in my vagina already. I'm like, can you (laughs) confirm for me whether I have a prolapse? And, um, she just like pokes around a bit more and she's like, yep. And that was it. I was like, really? Like, ah, like I, and then I was like, well, can you tell me if it's like, which one? She's like, no, not really. And that was that. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. You're and so, in my vagina. Give me answers. No, and I don't know if they would need to do an ultrasound or whatever. And then I'm like, okay, uh, I guess it doesn't matter. You typically don't need to do an ultrasound. You know, that's the other interesting thing too, is like the interator reliability on it, like two people doing it can be very different, right? Like maybe it's similar to cervix checks potentially. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, right. And so it's when you add the human element involved in a you know, quantifying this objective data, they might get different results too. And that can be really confusing to people getting assessed. So some people err on the side of just calling it anterior prolapse, posterior prolapse, but they don't associate it with the grade because it can go down a a train that maybe is not the most conducive to recovery. Well, and then the other piece I'd wondered was, I mean, they had me in this almost sitting position, a stirrups kind of set up. But I know for myself, like it's the worst when I'm on the toilet, because then you've got that bowl where everything is hanging down and when you're pushing. So that'd be the worst scenario for seeing a prolapse. That's not the position I'm in. So I feel like it could be a stage two when they're assessing, but what it looks like to me in the toilet position is like a three. Um, so it feels more alarming to me, but when you're talking about symptoms, like I mostly have no symptoms. Hmm. So I don't know. Yes, exactly. So you, you hit on quite a few things there, right? A lot, a lot of the times, if you're getting assessed by an OB or midwife, it's in a backline position without the addition of gravity at play, right? Well, we don't live life on our backs and most people don't feel prolapse symptoms on their backs. They feel prolapse symptoms when they're upright toileting exercising in a deep squat position, that's where they feel it. 
So now, you know, if you were to go in person, more public for physical therapists, physios, right? They're, they're trying to start incorporating standing assessments as part of their initial evaluation. But there again, I didn't need any of that to know exactly like probably grade two, maybe grade three on the toilet. Like you're kind of already thinking about that based off of what you're saying. And so for you, uh, it sounds like on the toilet is like the only place that you're feeling that your normal everyday thing, you're not thinking about it in the back of your head. So that's kind of how I would start with someone. I'd be like, well, tell me what you're feeling. Like, Mm -hmm. it sounds like you kind of already did that. You said on the toilet, I'm feeling this, but on my day to day, I don't feel it. Is that right? Okay. So, uh, like I would say there's a few things, um, emotionally I'm in my head about it in sex. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like a blockage. It feels unattractive. Um, I would say physically in the gym, it's, I have to push myself really hard. Like I felt it yesterday at, I was doing just to brag a little bit, um, a set <laughs> of three squats at 255 yeah. and that's a full depth. So there's like, uh, maybe I'm going to pee a tiny bit, not enough that I need to pad. And then I would say where I would get into any peeing symptoms would only be in a combination of like doing double unders with toes to bar where I'm really stressing abdominals and the jumping, but I can usually do like on its own, I could easily do 50 to hundred double unders and not leak at all. So I feel fairly asymptomatic. Um, but then there's other days where I'm like, oh, I would never have another baby because I would not want this to be a three, four. Right. Right. And, you know, they have shown that it doesn't actually always, it's not correlated to making your prolapse worse either. Laura right? will let me have another baby anyway. Yeah. I'm happy for her because <laughs> so, that's a reason to not have a baby. Thrilled. I'm also 41, but every time we have a client that's 42, 43, I'm like, oh, I can have another baby. No, you can't. <laughs> Well, and you were also talking about leakage symptoms and some pelvic heaviness symptoms. Sometimes those can go together and sometimes those don't go together, right? Like they can exist opposite, right? Like you can have leakage without a prolapse and you can have prolapse with leakage and vice versa, right? You can have a prolapse and no leakage at all. And so there's just so many different combinations. So it sounds like you're actually dealing with two different types of things. You do experience leakage but more from an endurance issue than anything, because it sounds like it's not just the general impact right away because you're not leaking on your first double under in your first five dumbbell bars. You said it's 50 to hundred. So to me, it kind of screams an endurance issue that you don't have. And, or when your body is physically fatigued, you, your form or your, you're potentially having some compensations happen when you get to those 50 or hundred, where now your posture, your breathing, your pressure management system isn't as efficient as it used to be. So then it goes back to that coordination and endurance issue, if anything. Mm, cool. From, from a leakage standpoint, you know, from a public heaviness standpoint, you mentioned um, with intimacy, like it's more of a you thing, right? Makes you feel uncomfortable, makes you feel kind of unsexy. I just want to clear the waters. Your dude does not know if you're with a male partner, he has no idea. <laughs> And it is often a thing that we internally struggle with. I actually went through, you know, prolapse journey of my own grade two, three prolapse. 
Um, and in the beginning stages of me really in my recovery and rehab journey with prolapse, I also felt similarly in the bedroom. I felt like, oh my God, he's going to know, like, it feels weird. It feels weird to me. Does it feel weird to him? And like all of those things, then we were out of our head. They have no idea. I've talked to a lot of partners and a lot of, you know, they have no idea. <laughs> um, and so I think that's one thing to just like, we re rest assured that their your partner probably has no idea what's going on. But for you feeling like it's a blockage from a from my standpoint, what that conversation would look like, I would start asking you, what position are you in when you're feeling that blockage? Is it the same position? Do you feel the blockage when you're on a hands and knees position versus a back line? Because remember, gravity plays a factor. Is it when you're in sideline? And then we start talking about different strategies that you can utilize um, in the bedroom utilizing pillows, different positions to make you not have that blockage. And then you start finding what works for you and your body. And then with that comes more confidence for you because now you know what your go-to positions are that don't give you that blockage. And then it spirals into you not you feeling better in the bedroom in terms of you know the, the entire experience, emotionally, mentally, connection, all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I hope this is the season we talk about sex on every podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not afraid to go there. So if you have any more questions. Good goal. Good goal. Um, so then for diastasis, um, so I had twins for my first pregnancy and I went to 39 and five. And so fairly substantial diastasis. What I'm finding now, 12 years out, is that um, I get lower back pain and I get the kind of S um, zigzag. So tilted hips forward uh, lower back ache, and then compensation, thoracic, uh, ribs or back head forward kind of mm-hmm. exact patterning. Um, I've bought online programs and I guess that's, you know, and then not done them. Uh, I've also <laughs> been to, so I feel like I fall into the classic, um, piece of, yeah, the, somehow I'm able to go to the gym multiple times a week, but this follow-up or consistency with anything physio related has never happened. Mm-hmm. It probably is not stimulating to you enough. It's not challenging enough. It probably feels really boring to you. And is that maybe safe boring. to say? Because it sounds like you are kind of a go-getter in the gym. You like to, you know, lift heavy. You like to do double unders and all these really fun, exciting workouts. But then when it comes to maybe some pelvic floor or core rehab, it's like, well, that's kind of boring. I'm not going to spend my time doing that. Did I nail you? <laughs> so, you know, and, the, and what is, <laughs> yeah. So can you heal her inner bitch? She's looking at, she's looking at healing her inner bitch also this season. Oh my God. <laughs> Tell all my secrets. Oh, we're just going to show up 15 minutes before class just to work on your pelvic floor exercises. Like, yeah, yeah no, you're right. You it's roll so in two boring. minutes before class. Yeah, I know. Actually, sometimes five minutes after class yes. because now I live so far from the gym. Right. So part of everybody get time for that. Part of what I think that we do personally really well is working with the human on a very customized and individual level. And like you mentioned, you've bought multiple courses or apps or whatever, and you didn't do them. And honestly, the completion rate for continuation of courses is like in the 20%. Yeah. Majority of people who purchase courses or apps that are kind of cookie cutter without accountability, without individualized support, without the guidance of someone individually programming for you is very low. 
And then they wonder, God, I tried all the apps and it didn't work for me. And I'm still peeing my pants. And I did the rehab. It's like, well, did you, did you really do the rehab? And did you really commit the time, the 12, 16, you know, 24 weeks to actually progressing you over time? (laughs) (laughs) Right. So three days. (laughs) Like when I buy a self-help book and I read the first quarter and I'm like, why am I not healed? (laughs) <laughs> exactly. We, I mean, and that's normal, like human experience, right? We want the quick, easy approach. We just want the one exercise that's going to heal everything and just give me the easy button. Right. And that's totally human nature, but that's also like moms too, right? Like we kind of need that 10, 15 minute workout that we can do and then move on with our day. So what we've really built our entire program around is not cookie cutter material and high level of accountability, high level of mentorship, guidance, checking in on you at least weekly throughout our programs. But also what we find is when we help people with that 50%, right, 50% of its education and getting your buy-in and understanding you and figuring out like how we're going to create this exercise program for you specifically, that's going to look so different for every person. Because if you're going to the gym three times a week and you're already getting a great workout in, you need us like four times a week for 10 or 15 minutes to create how we're going to fit your exercises in around what you're already doing or else you're just not going to do it. And we know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that customization is so important, but also you're not just doing like the cookie cutter approach or the exercises that everybody's doing, whether they had a C-section or dealing with diastasis or prolapse or leakage, because you're just throwing one generic exercise program on everybody. Even if it's a diastasis program, it's still generic and it's thrown to everybody. It's not specific to your diastasis with what you're struggling with because objectively, subjectively, everyone's different. So for us, like when we're creating, you know, programs with people, and I think this is why we get such great results because we have high adherence, we have high buy-in and we have high follow through because we're actually meeting people where they need to be met and creating them programs that are going to fit into their lifestyle, but that are very specific and targeted to the exercises that only they need to do. And just like forgetting all the extra fluff. Okay. So I'm confused because at the beginning we talked about the specificity of the assessment piece is not as important because you're probably going to get the same program anyway. So how does that match with what you just said about specificity of meeting the symptoms where the person's at? Mm, I hear what you're saying. So part of that is education specifics, right? Like you're dealing with things on the toilet and potentially in the bedroom. So we're going to spend a lot more time about strategies for you and exercises for you that are targeted to that. So that's where the special specialty kind of comes in, in general, right? Like there's a prolapse, uh, you know, cookie cutter program. The exercises might be very similar to what we would give you. They're pulling from their pulling from that education, pulling from that. But what you don't get by utilizing a cookie cutter app or a program, if you will, is the accountability, the mentorship, the guidance, someone checking in on you, someone actually feeling like they care about you and your success and your progress, right? Because I think that's where the the majority of people actually, I don't want to say the word fail, but like uh, they, they try it and then they think that they did it and really they didn't get any better. So they're nervous to try other things. And it's like, well, we didn't really try it in the way that's going to be the most successful for you. And that's where that individualization comes in, right? Like 
for you, we know you work out three times a week. You're not needing a whole workout program. You're needing 10 or 15 minutes of prolapse specific and leakage specific targeted specifically to endurance and coordination in your program. Mm. And then she Which needs to be star every single time she does it so that she keeps doing it. Or you I'm have to check in with you. Like how did this week's <laughs> exercises go? Right. Like yeah. we have video check-ins all throughout our program. We have video check-ins every few weeks, but we also check in through the app portal. Right. So we have yeah. one-on-one communication channel with all of our clients. So if you, we don't hear from you in a week, we're going to reach out to you. How did this last week go? How are you doing? Any questions? Do you need anything? We can see how adherent you are to the program based off of if you check it off. We know that, you know, you're 50% adherent or 90% adherent or 10% adherent, whether you checked off the exercise yeah, or not. That's, that's, good. that's, that's what I need. Yeah, yeah, that is what I need. <laughs> when you get someone to program for you. I do. And when I have to check it off. And then, and then it when it off. is a big red X when you don't do the workout, the worst. And then it like an emails you, you missed your workout. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> yeah. So I don't have that though with CrossFit. Like, where's my gold star? What do you mean gold star? Like, I think you just need to feel accomplished. And I don't know if you feel accomplished. Like CrossFit coach currently does not give a rip whether in there or not. That's true. But I, mean, I think it's the challenge for you potentially. Yeah. You yeah. like to be challenged. So maybe the exercises you did felt boring to you and to like yeah. low level and you like to challenge yourself maybe. Yeah. Like it's funny. Remember time. the, um, the last thing I thought I, I really just wanted to get the diastasis thing down to like one exercise. So I was like, I'm going to do the towel wrap sit up. Right. And then <laughs> how long did that last? Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, I'm going to do it in bed before I get out of bed. Oh, it's like habit this, stacking. No, like the advice you give to other people. And then you're like, I will never do a sit up in bed. Let's be clear. Yeah, never. <laughs> Except for when I'm getting out of bed. Yeah, that's my that's sit up in bed. One. I sit up and get out of bed. One. <laughs> Maybe plus one at night to go to the bathroom. That's it. Psychology is so interesting. It really is. Like, like how much, what percentage so of your job is being a therapist? I, I mean, the therapist doesn't like psychology side of yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. Like 50% really, because everyone's so different and everyone's going to respond different and everyone's motivation is different. Everyone needs different types of accountability. Um, some, you know, it's, it's literally like education and figuring out the human on the other side and how we're going to best be able to make them successful and make them adherent to the program is like 50% of the battle. So how much of the program is, um, like group and how much of it is one-on-one? So all of it's one-on-one, but you have the benefit of being a part of a group because we have like a group forum for all of the moms that are in the program with us. So I think right now we have like a little over 50 people like in the group and we um, allow them to like, you know, the group is theirs. They can share wins, they can share struggles, they can share things. And sometimes we will, you know, poach, if you will, or like plant a seed to help conversations get started. But some people are naturally just like really community-based and share on on their own independently what's working for them, what they're struggling with. And so it's just a safe space for all, you know, women and moms to feel like, oh, I'm not the only one dealing with prolapse. Like, oh, we're all working on this together and feeling a little less alone in the journey. Um, But we also do like fun giveaways and stuff like that in there. Nice. Oh, I love that. Love a giveaway. (laughs) All right. I'm out of questions. Do you yeah. have any questions? No, I, th- I think that that was a lot of information for yeah. people. It was just time. really wonderful. Um, I would like to know maybe like what tips you would give someone. Cause we have a lot of people who listen, who are pregnant with their first baby. 
what mm-hmm. tips would you give them for activity and movement moving forward with their pregnancy and approaching birth? I also want to hear your pushing advice. Yeah. Uh, open Gladys pushing. <laughs> Let them push independently how they want to push is my, my initial advice there, but there's, it's important to teach on both, right? Because maybe a mom would use, you know, a mixture of both. Uh, I think the biggest thing in terms of pitching, and then we'll go back to the exercise piece from our perspective in terms of protecting the pelvic floor and trying to help the pelvic floor expand as much as possible is one to realize that their pelvic floor does not need to be strong to push the baby out because the uterus pushes the baby out. So I think that's what first time moms often don't realize is they just need to like get their pelvic floor strong because they got to push a baby out. And it's like, really, we need to teach moms, you know, that are pregnant, whether it's their first baby or fourth baby. When you start rolling into that third trimester, a lot of what we're working on with pelvic floor core coordination is how to release and how to relax in different positions, right? So like, what does it feel like to have your pelvic floor drop, to lengthen, to release um, on hands and knees? What does it feel like to breathe into that pelvic floor relaxation and standing and bent over on your back, on your side? So getting them comfortable in pregnancy, knowing how to connect to their pelvic floor, but more specifically learning how to connect to the pelvic floor by lengthening and releasing um, as if, you know, a baby were to be exiting because that's what the pelvic floor needs to do. It needs to lengthen. And it actually stretches two and a half times its normal resting length during birth, during a vaginal birth. Which part of the pelvic floor are you talking about lengthening? Uh, So all parts of the pelvic floor, because the pelvic floor is like a hammock. So it kind of all needs to descend and lengthen since it works as a unit together. Uh, But more specifically, the levator ani muscle, which has the piercings of the holes for the exits of, you know, all of our fluids and babies. um, That's the muscle that actually stretches two and a half times its normal resting length during a vaginal birth. So if we're not poop. Yeah. 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 And it's totally normal. (laughs) Um, I also wrote down, um, what do you think traditional healthcare is missing for women in this space? Can we go back first to the open epiglottis push? Oh, sure. Before Mm. we get here. Yeah. Uh, do you want to speak to that a bit more just so people know what you know what you mean? And do you want to even, because this will be a podcast, not a video, uh, sound, make a sound of what that would sound like? Yeah, sure. So when we think of um, closed glottis push, pushing, we're thinking of like pursed lips, closed mouth, and then all of the pressure being built up internally and then down towards the pelvic floor. Um, when we have this happen, like coach pushing for long periods of time or closed mouth pushing for long periods of time, we do see an increase of prolapse in that postpartum recovery phase. Um, if that was the only style of pushing that they did, um, those people will tend to have more birth injuries, um, and also more increased risk for prolapse and pelvic heaviness post-birth. So we feel, I say we, I'm speaking on the health, you know, public health, but also our team really believes in also open glottis. So as your mouth is open, you can channel the air coming in through the nose and the mouth and then out being able to blow air out low sounds like, so low sounds, open glottis, because that will help translate the pressure down without bearing the pressure only in one specific area. So I always tell people you have holes at the top and you have holes at the bottom, right? We have our nose and our mouth at the top. 
and we have our, our rectum, our vaginal opening, and our urethra at the bottom. So this is the only way for our pressure to be managed. And so when we utilize open glottis pushing or just throughout our day-to-day, uh, you know, lifting at the gym or coughing and sneezing, like when you hold your breath or you close your nose, you only are allowing all of the internal pressure to go out one direction versus two directions and decreasing the internal pressure system, if that makes sense. Um, so that's when we think about open glottis, we're trying to also utilize decreasing the internal pressure system by air exiting through the, the nose and the mouth as well, and then letting the uterus do its job to move baby down and out. Do you feel like the rules are different when you have an epidural involved, like for pushing? Um, I think there's lack of sensation. And so when there's lack of sensation, there's lack of that mind body connection. And, you know, especially if you didn't prepare or plan or practice in pregnancy, and then you get thrown into a situation of that, it's probably even harder to connect. So, you know, what I always tell moms during pregnancy is like really form a strong mind body connection with your pelvic floor. So like, if I say, close your eyes, find your pelvic floor, find your urethra, find your vaginal opening, find your rectal opening. Can you mind body connect, you know, internally, spatially to that region? Like I would say, close your eyes, find your right elbow. Cause we can all find our right elbow pretty easily, but can moms actually find all those different parts of their pelvic floor? So if we can form a really good, strong mind-body awareness connection to that region, then I think it helps during the pushing phase because they're a little bit more self-aware of where that area and where baby's exiting. But also if they do have an epidural, they already have a little bit of a jump start to try to f- have that internal connection. Yeah. Yeah, that's good advice. Mm-hmm. But if you're somebody who's listening, who's planning an epidural, sounds like it's even more important to see some pelvic floor physio to build that connection. If you don't feel like you have it. It makes me so mad that my prolapse is from my second birth where I literally didn't push at all. He just flew out. Yeah. That is maddening. And where my first one, where I did a lot of pushing is not where I got the prolapse. It's just so wild. I mean, obviously there was a weakness there that meant that that's when it showed up and maybe it was building all pregnancy, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. that's what I was just going to say. Maybe it was there, but you didn't symptomatically or you weren't aware of it. And then you became aware of it. It sounds like after the second birth, um, after more, more load during pregnancy, you carried another baby on a weak pelvic floor. Um, and then additionally in that postpartum phase, if you never were told you had a prolapse, like when would you have maybe gone in to figure it out on your own? Or when would he, when would you have noticed that? I mean, I'm pretty, pretty curious. So yeah, I'm pretty sure I didn't have one after the first mm-hmm. the three and a half year gap there that I'm pretty sure I would have discovered it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Curious, you are curious. <laughs> 70 80 percent of women have some form of prolapse after their first no. baby, so like it could have been there. And you just like, you know, typically yeah. we say like yeah. grade one, you don't really notice you have it, grade two is actually when people start start noticing some symptoms, grade three, yeah. you're definitely noticing it for sure. Yeah, okay, so yeah, so traditional health care. Yeah, what, what do you think we're missing? What do you think women would benefit from? Like, I'm just imagining someone going to their family doctor six weeks after they have a baby and saying, 
you know what? I hear my mom talking about peeing when she jumps and I really don't want that to happen. Like, what is a family doctor even saying? Well, I'm even thinking about in France where they have upwards of 20 pelvic floor physio appointments, appointments in pregnancy and postpartum. And here we're like, uh, you can pay that? for that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we're missing. The continuation yeah. of support during pregnancy and postpartum to not only give them exercises to prepare their body for birth and to re- recover from childbirth, but also the education that goes along with it. Because in, you know, in the States where we're at, right? Like, it's like, you have to independently pay for that. No one is like guiding you to say like, hey, okay, now you've had a baby. Now let's start educating you on all things pregnancy and all things birth prep. And on, okay, you had your baby. Now we're going to cattle you this way and we're going to guide you that way. No one is really doing that. And so the people who get support are the ones that are actually actively independently seeking for solutions and support. It's not like typically recommended. And I think that, you know, in the last few years, we definitely have seen an uptick in recommendations in general from like providers becoming more aware, but even then there's still so many, you know, people that we work with that they're like, yeah, I had a six week checkup. I told them I was dealing with pelvic heaviness or prolapse and I felt like I had a prolapse or leakage and they're like, oh, that's normal. Just come back in a few months if it gets worse or yeah, just start doing some Kegels. And it's like the blanket advice that people are getting. And um, so a lot of women are still feeling very dismissed. And I think a lot of women are still feeling alone in this journey. But thanks to social media, a lot more people are actually talking about their journeys and their experiences and pelvic floor recovery and rehab and birth prep has like really taken off in social media the last few years where I think it's helping educate. I can't tell you how many people like come into, you know, our our facility by just saying like, oh, I saw this online. It's like social media is like the process that people are finding out their information right now. Yeah, Yeah, it's incredible. Um, Peeing in the shower. Is this a good thing or bad? And what is it about? I feel like I had someone tell me that after birth, they were like, don't worry about the kegels, but just do a squat and pee in the shower. And I'm like, what? After you had your baby? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe just to help get the the urine out and the bladder going again. Um, you know, so there's a, there's a lot of people who say don't pee in the shower. And then there's people who say like pee in the shower, right? Like, so the reason that people would say don't pee in the shower is because you're correlating running water to peeing. So when you're outside of the shower and you're washing dishes, you hear running water. And so then your brain and your body is forming this Pavlov dog, you know, of, oh, I need to go pee. And they start getting that urge. Some women do deal with uh, urinary urgency or there's specific triggers that create this urgency that they deal with. And for some people, it is running water. So when they do the, every time I do the dishes or run the bath, I got to pee. And sometimes I don't get to the bathroom in time. I got to run there real quick because there is some uh, mis, you know, connection where the, the mind body connection And this neural feedback loop is associated to going to the bathroom with running water. So that's where people, it's like not a blanket advice statement. And that's the problem with social media is, you know, with, with hooks and marketing and all that stuff, there's like, this is for everyone. And it's like, okay, for the person who does deal with water as a trigger, then I'd recommend not trying to pee in the shower. Like, Think about going to the bathroom and then going into the shower because we're trying to disassociate that trigger for you. And so that takes time and we're trying to create space between the trigger and when you actually pee. 
Now, there could be someone else that has a really difficult time starting the flow of urine, and the sound of water actually helps them go to the bathroom. And maybe in your case where they say, just squat and go to the bathroom, because we're trying to stimulate that association to happen. So it's all individual advice needed, and there really is no like blanket statement for everybody. Yeah. Okay, last question. We finish every podcast with this. If you could put anything on a billboard, what would it be? Oh, man. This is a great question. You didn't even prep me for this. I know. We don't prep anyone. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Really, <laughs> then it gets way too intense and convoluted. Oh, that totally makes sense. If I could put anything in, um, I would just say spread love. Yes. Oh, love I like that. that. I'd say spread love, not even pelvic health related. I think that there needs to be more love and kindness towards other people. Um, that's what I would say. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I love that. This has been fun. Thank you so much, Jessica. Yeah. You yes. are just wealth of knowledge. It's amazing listening to you. <laughs> we'll have to do this again. And, and I'm just excited to um, be a part of the, the revolution for women. <laughs> totally. All right. Have a good day in your Arizona mountain standard time that we understand now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Bye. We would just love it if you would take the time to leave us a five-star rating, a review. If you'd subscribe to our show, you can screenshot it while you're listening to us and even share it on the gram. Remember, you are important too. Disclaimer, we are not medical professionals. Everything said here is our own opinion and not to be taken as medical advice. We do not take any responsibility from the outcomes of you taking our advice. Please seek medical advice from your trusted healthcare professionals.